Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. When Minda Hearts approached major publishers with a proposal for a book about how women of color can overcome adversity and thrive in the workplace, she was told, there's no audience for this idea. But as you already might have guessed, her book is now published and has become an American bestseller. Minda's book is called The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a Seat at the Table. And after I read it, I knew I wanted to bring her on to the podcast. Honestly, as a white man of a certain age, I'd never read anything like it. And until I read it, I also hadn't fully understood the challenges people of color face in our workplaces, whether it's to earn a job or secure a leadership role. A recent Fortune magazine survey shows that nearly two-thirds of American CEOs plan to implement policy changes in their organizations in order to support the Black Lives Matter movement. And as a statement, that's quite a commitment. But between 1985 and 2014, the percentage of Black men in management positions in companies with 100 or more employees crept from just 3% to 3.3%. And for black women over the same 30-year period, the progress was virtually non-existent. So on the assumption that companies are truly serious about their diversity pledge and will soon ask their leaders to support it, this episode is dedicated to helping to answer the question, how can individual managers create greater team diversity and advocate for the career progress of all their colleagues of color? Minda Hartz is an assistant professor of public service at New York University and as our guest brings unvarnished but practical insights on how workplace managers can better understand the challenges and countless barriers people of color experience. And I'm planning to have her help us discover ways we can help men and women of color achieve the same kinds of career dreams all of us possess. As some backstory on this episode, I reached out to Minda early this summer months ago, and asked her if she'd be my guest on LinkedIn Live, where our audience would be able to both hear and see our discussion. But LinkedIn is nearly three months behind in approving LinkedIn Live applications, and so we just recently decided together to end the delay and finally get this episode out. For this fourth season of our podcast, I've really sought to surprise you with my guests and topics, and all with the intention of helping you lead more successfully and with greater heart. And as I introduce Minda, I'm almost certain this episode will ring all of those bells. And a warm welcome to you, Minda Hartz. Thank you, Mark. So happy to be here with you. Well, let's get started, shall we? The full name of your book is The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a Seat at the Table. And it's just one year after it was published. In fact, I think you just published your paperback version this week. So congratulations. And it continues to attract a really huge audience. So congratulations on that, too. So tell us who you intended this for. Like, Who were you thinking about when you wrote this? And why do you think its message is resonating so strongly? Yeah, it's funny that you asked that, Mark, because when I wrote the book, I was writing from a pain point, (laughs) a pain point I was experiencing as a woman of color, as a black woman in the workplace, being one of the only ones. And I wrote it because I didn't have a book like the memo when I was going through corporate America or growing in my career. And I wish that I would have had a book that talked about the experiences that are unique to women like me. And I wrote it with other women in mind that might have been suffering in isolation, might 
be wondering if something was a microaggression, did I make it up and all of the mental gymnastics that sometimes we encounter. So I wrote it with us in mind, with us at the center of the career narrative, but I also hoped and prayed that our managers, our colleagues, those who consider themselves allies would read it too, so that they can have a bird's eye view into what it's like to be us in the workplace. And as the book has gained more traction, it's becoming a book, not just a book for women of color, but for all who want to make the workplace better for everybody. Oh, that's wonderful. After reading the book, I was thinking, I need to advocate for this. You've done a really good job on your own. I want to ask you how you've done so well in building a brand and getting people to really know about this book and read it. But I just thought, you know, my audience is very much leadership oriented. And yet this is nuance. This is, and I'm speaking as a white workplace leader trying to understand the black experience. So that's sort of how I'm positioning myself for this conversation so that that message, that insight gets conveyed to my audience. And I just thought this is really the time for this discussion. So I'm doing a lot of talking here without really pinning down the question. And I guess the question is, is that who is reading it and how is it getting such a great audience? Yeah, it's the perfect situation to a really hard social time in our country, right? And so when the book first came out, I have to say that a lot of women of color were finding it, black and brown women, and they were resonating with it because it wasn't just my story. It was their story, too. It was experiences that were very familiar with their lived experience inside their workplaces or past workplaces. But when I would be invited into certain companies, some of the you know dominant majority <laughs> would be a little like apprehensive about me coming initially to talk about this book because that would mean we'd have conversations about race that many people weren't ready to have yet, right? And so were these things really happening and that sort of thing? And then slowly but surely more would lean into their courage, right? And say, okay, maybe we do need to have these conversations. And then you had you know, the George Floyd situation and a stream of other cases. And then we were in quarantine as well. And so we had to start looking at some of these systemic issues. And the memo was there to serve as a guide, not just for women of color, but for our managers. How do you manage diverse talent during a time like this? And how do you lean into that empathy and lead with heart? And part of that is understanding the experiences of people who don't look like you. Totally agree. Wondering if, from your point of view, was some of the apprehension that you personally were going to come into their organization and, you know, sort of rile people up, like you're not getting what you deserve kind of messaging, because that's not who you are. It's not the message of your book at all. And yet I wonder if that was a hurdle that you had to overcome and convince people that you're presenting this in the fairest, most thoughtful most human way. Yeah, I think that was it, right? Because for people who aren't used to talking about race, they might think, well, what is she going to say? Is she going to call me a racist? Is she going to burn this place down and lead a a revolt out out of the place? And I could see why people would maybe think that, but that's part of not understanding the experiences of other people, right? Two things can be true at the same time. We might have some issues, but let's talk about the solutions. And that's why I wrote the memo. If you read the memo, I take you on a journey. Yes, there were some trauma that I experienced, but I was able to turn that trauma into 
I guess, a triumph, if you will. And I wanted to share that story because I think we have a lot of openings and possibilities. There was one particular company that I spoke at, and I remember maybe an hour before I was supposed to show up, one of the partners at the company had called me. He's like, I'm really nervous about this. You know, we've never done anything like this before. You know, is, is this going to be okay? Did I make a mistake? And I said, listen, you know, we'll call him Jim. I said, Jim, trust me. Okay. <laughs> Everything's going to be okay. And he's like, yeah, but you know, it's going to be, there's not a lot of people of color. There's going to be a lot of white men. I just don't know how this is going to go. I said, just trust me. And when we had the conversation, everyone leaned into it and all the walls fell down. I mean, he was even telling me, go deeper, talk about this more, you know? So, and that was kind of like, once I get in the door and talk about it, once people start to read the book, then you realize this is humanizing the workplace. This isn't about leading a revolt. This is about saying, how can we make the workplace work for everybody? And when we have the skills and the tools and the awareness, we can do that. And that comes through in your book. And this is not a parallel, but in terms of me connecting to what you were describing, there have been many companies that have heard, oh, our potential speaker, he talks about leading from the heart. And they immediately go, oh, like, is he going to come in and sing Kumbaya? I mean, is he going to be like a weirdo? And, you know, we have all these fantasies of what it's going to be, but it's a substantial hurdle because what happens is sometimes people just say, well, you know, let's just bring in the tried and true guy. Let's just talk about something else other than race here. We can do that later, you know, and then we just kick the can down the road, which to your point, they're missing out and they're missing out on doing some really extraordinary growth for their organization if they have the courage to have these conversations. So kudos to you. The essence of your book is that you want to help black women specifically, but black people in general, secure a seat at the table. That's your language. And I think I know what you mean by it, but it's not entirely clear in your book exactly what you're really advocating for. So I wanted to ask you to pin that down so that everyone understands it. I'm glad you you asked that question, Mark, because we talk a lot about a seat at the table just in general in the workplace, and it's much more deeper than just table fixtures and, and things of that sort, but it's really about owning your career. So yes, we know that there may be some barriers in place. But what does it look like to advocate for yourself? What does it look like to build the right relationships inside the workplace to make sure that people know what it is you want being here, right? You know, I remember being in my career and I was working really hard thinking that everybody knew what I wanted. And I remember one of my managers said, well, I didn't know you wanted more out of your career. And I thought, how silly is this? How come you didn't know? And then I thought for a second, you know what? I never articulated that, (laughs) you know, even though I thought that, that that's true. And I think part of that is understanding what is it that you want? Do you want to be in the executive suite? Do you want to be an individual contributor? Whatever it is you decide that you want out of the workplace, making sure that you're creating the path to get there and that you're bringing people with you to help you obtain that. And I think for so long, The table has looked very (laughs) not so colorful because I think sometimes we lean into helping other people that look like us or think like us or that we have relationships with. And I think sometimes we miss out and oftentimes on people that may not go to the happy hour, they may not go to the workroom break, birthday parties, those sorts of things. But it doesn't mean that they can't also have a seat. And I remember growing up, I used to go to my grandmother's house and she had this very small table and we'd all come over to eat and I'd always be like why does she always invite us over when she doesn't have the room and then like magic 
she would pull the wooden table out and then put a plank in, right? (laughs) And now the table was expanded. And that's what I want for people. Mark, I don't want you to have to give up your seat, but what would it look like if you pulled up a chair for me? And now we both can contribute to the conversation. And I think we just have to take a look around the table and say, you know, who's missing and why aren't they here? Let's build those relationships as well and make sure that we're invested in everybody in the workforce. You know, it's interesting listening to you. That was really beautifully said, by the way. That, you know, what I know about us, we human beings, is that we like people like us. That's just who we are. So people like people like themselves. And so what that also means is that we have a tendency to hire people like ourselves, right? And so that's the miss in terms of having a diverse workforce. That's the miss in terms of having a much broader and more successful team is that we get locked in without even realizing it that, oh, that person reminds me of when I was younger or they have the same drive that I have. And it's all under the hood. You know, none of this is really conscious. And so, you know, what you said about putting a leaf in the table is just magic in terms of the descriptiveness of it. So I love that. I want to talk about you a little bit personally, because your name is Minda, which it happens to be like, to me, a really cool name. I resonated with it immediately. I just thought it's fun. It's upbeat. It's confident. Whoever gave you that name, you know, they did something really great for you. And then, of course, I'm reading in your book, and your name really isn't Minda after all. Your name given at birth was Yasminda, and you later changed it, which was painful for me to read this because you thought that having people say Yasminda made them uncomfortable. Like, I can't relate to somebody with that name. So I really want to go there. Tell me why you made this decision. Yeah, at the time, I didn't realize how painful a decision it would later be. But it started really as um, I first started school. And my teacher would not say my name. Therefore, the kids in my class, this was kindergarten, wouldn't say my name either. And I remember going to my mom after school. And, you know, I was sad. And she asked me what's wrong. And I said, well, the teacher won't call me Yasminda. And the kids won't call me that either. And so nobody's calling me by my name. And I told her that I want to go by Minda because I think that that'll be easier. And I don't know, you know, as a four or five-year-old, I think my mom even was like, where did you come up with this? But I realized- I was going to ask you that. Yeah, there were some signals there. And and Mark, it happened when I got to grade school. I tried it again, same situation, high school. And so every time I tried to use Yasminda, I kept being reinforced that- this is too hard to say that this isn't a normal name. And I just wanted to belong. And so I realized getting those signals growing up that when I entered the workplace, I'm like, God forbid I put Yasminda on the resume. That's when, you know, you, people saw your resume, <laughs> you know, you sent it in or you yeah, gave it. Yeah. And um, I'm like, I don't want that to discourage them from calling me because then they would call you on the phone. And if they can't pronounce Yasminda or they're afraid to pronounce it, then that's going to be a problem for me. And so I just realized that I just have to go with Minda because the world has signaled to me that Yasminda is just too much. So I'm just curious as to what you think the reason that the teacher was unwilling to use your name. That's a harsh thing to do in kindergarten, right? It's a harsh thing. You know, I believe she was doing it consciously. I really, in my heart, don't Mm -hmm. believe that. But I think it goes back to the point that you made. Like if we're not used to seeing certain names or we're not exposed to different cultures, 
then we just dismiss it, right? Even in college, I mean, I had my professors wouldn't even attempt to say Yasminda. And you said it without even hearing me say it to you, right? Like you, and you said it right. And I would prefer someone to even get it wrong and try, right? And so I would end up having to raise my hand and say, oh, it's me who you're referring to. I would even know before they'd even even attempt it. I say, it's Yasminda, but you can call me Minda. And then I could just see the relief in their eyes and on their face. And so I just realized I was always one of the only, and I just wanted again to to belong. And I felt at the time that was the best way. But if I had to do it all over again, (laughs) I probably would do it differently. And that's what I tell young women of color and men of color when they asked me, you know, should I use when they're in college, they'll ask me, should I use my real name when I apply for this job? And I say, you know what, you do what centers you because you have to show up in the workplace. So what are you comfortable with? And, and I think that we have to reinforce those things. That's about bringing your authentic self to work. But I didn't get those cues early on. I want to like compliment you and say, wow, what profoundly great instincts you had. But there was also like you cut off an appendage, right? You gave up something in order to fit in. And that, I think, is what was most painful for me, you know, that that you couldn't be Yasminda as a five-year-old cute little kid going to kindergarten. I just, you know, but I mentioned it because it sort of creates a foundation for the rest of the conversation in terms of your point of view. It's like, hey, this is my name. And if we can't even use my name, then what other struggles are we going to have to get where we want to in life and get to in our careers? So... You've done a lot of research into why the pipeline doesn't really promote more women and people of color to, I'll just say, executive leadership positions, but generally it's all leadership positions. And so you mentioned in your book that you wrote about some of the personal obstacles that you faced and encountered in your pursuit of growth in your career. How about sharing some of those and explaining what it is that you were connecting to with other Black employees, Black leaders in terms of their shared experience? Yeah, it's interesting because for me, being one of the only ones, you do, it wasn't just my name, as you mentioned, that was like one thing that I had to, I felt for survival, that was the the right things to do. And then as I continued on in my pursuits, I realized there were other things that I would have to concede to where I felt like I did. And I think that was some of the, to talk about that out loud, because even in our community, you know, the black community, we don't always, we're not vulnerable sometimes to say, Hey, this is actually bothering me, or this is a problem because we have been communicated to, or maybe in our households unintentionally that, you know, you just go in there, you keep your head down, you work really hard. And if somebody says something to you, don't rock the boat. Right. So we learn don't say anything about race unless you absolutely have to, you know, all of these things. Yeah. And I think that that silencing of yourself, never really getting to to express yourself like Tom might be able to, right? Or Kim might be able to, because then I might feel, I don't want to be called the angry Black woman or the feisty Latina, the docile Asian. And I think a lot of those narratives tend to get placed on us because people haven't extended their table, right? They don't have experiences with other people. So if someone is challenging them or holding them accountable, then it sometimes comes off a different way for for some people. And I think those were some of the stories that other Black people resonated with that we don't always get to just be ourselves and speak up on the things that matter most to us. We learn to silence ourselves 
And for example, I talk about this story in the book, but, and it was one that people even to this day still email me about is um, I had burnt orange fingernail polish on and, and my manager said, you people love your bright colors. And he joked around for 15 minutes about how black people love bright colors. And I was new into my job. My boss would go on to say things like that every day in some way. And I didn't think I could say anything, Mark. And I never did for a very long time because I didn't want to rock the boat. I didn't want to lose my job. And I didn't think I could hold. No one else was holding my manager accountable. And I didn't want to be the only one. I was already the only one, right? Yeah, and I think yeah, those, no win, right. yeah, and yeah. those are the stories that resonated, that still resonate with people because we're suffering in silence and in isolation. And, and I often think, what if one person would have said something in that moment, how that would have helped me as a young black woman in the workplace entering, you know, trying to climb the ladder that someone saw me and they humanized my experience. And I think that's why the memo has struck a nerve in so many people because we're finally seen for the first time in the career narrative. So how would you coach that manager? So let's just assume you were that manager's boss and you were in the room when he came in and said, you people really like your bright colors. What would you want that manager to know? That's a great question. (laughs) And I think that those are the type of things we have to talk about. When it's happening, what do you do? And if I were that manager's manager, I would say to him after the situation, um, there's two ways to handle it. But I think in that case, if you aren't used to talking about or calling things out, after it happened, going to him, let's call him Scott. Scott, I noticed that you said something to Minda in the meeting there, I just wanted to let you know that that's not appropriate to say. And I know you might not have meant any harm, but think about how that may have harmed her. And so I'd just like you to keep that in mind next time you're communicating with Minda. And I'd leave it there. But I think to not say anything, because the reality and the harm, Mark, is that most of us work with people like that, right? The ones that always say something that people just turn their head because that's just so-and-so being so-and-so. But how often are we allowing that person to be themselves, bring their authentic self to work and run off our good talent, right? Or aggress other people. And I think we really, if we want to lead with heart, if we want to make the workplace better than we found it, then it's going to require people to talk to those people causing harm and let them know, signal to them that this is a no tolerance, that that's not okay. Because I think the more we talk about it, then we create a culture that people like him would never say things like that. But oftentimes there is no repercussion. So they continue to make those statements. So would you make any assumptions on that person's motivations? So do you think that that person said that to you with harm in mind? condescension, criticism, judgment, or do you think, and I want you to give me the honest answer, so I I don't want to set this up with the final option being the easy one. Could it be that they're just naive? You know, they just don't have any experience with Black people, and so they say stupid things. What's your take? You have plenty of experience on this, so. Well, I think it's yes and, right? It could be any of those things, but what I hope we will do is have those conversations with those people that say those things so they can be educated, right? So maybe he didn't mean anything when he said it, but it did make me feel some kind of way. And that happened almost 15 years ago. And I still think that still bothers me, (laughs) you know, because not so much because he said it to me, yes, that hurt. But I then think about how many people after me that he met was a black woman and he would go on to say similar things like that. 
and think that it's okay, right? And or cute or whatever it might be. And I think we have to educate people. And if they continuously do it, then we can make assumptions as to why. But even now, I don't necessarily think that he was racist. Some might feel differently about it, but I do feel like there was some ignorance, right? There was a lot of different things, but I think no one ever held him accountable. And I think we put so much care on the people that quote unquote don't mean any harm, but we never consider what that harm does to people like me. Well said. Well, I mean, this transitions into something that just in the last few days happened that it kind of astonishes me, to be honest with you. Wells Fargo's new CEO. So this is an organization that has really had its troubles over the last three or four years with all sorts of dark and fraudulent activity that they're trying to restore their image from. And their brand new CEO, Charlie Scharf, publicly made this statement that his company lacked leadership diversity. And the reason that his organization lacked leadership diversity was because they had a very limited pool of black talent to recruit from. And so to his credit, and I think he got a lot of criticism for this, but a few days later, he did apologize for this. And I think insightfully said that it was an insensitive comment reflecting his own unconscious bias. So here's the CEO of one of the largest financial institutions in the United States saying, well, you know, we don't have that many black people that we can recruit from, you know, talented people, skilled people, what have you. So I just have to ask you, in light of what we were just talking about, what was your reaction when you heard this? Yeah, my group texts were blowing up, Mark, from that comment. But I will say this. I think that this is a perfect example of the Wells Fargo CEO. Now, I'm going to assume that this wasn't the first time that he's made statements like this. It may have been the first time in public that we're hearing about it. And so this is where that allyship and having those conversations really is important because he's under the impression that this is true. <laughs> right. And so that means that when he said it before, that no one's corrected him or even maybe perhaps challenge, you know, where are we looking for our talent? If we're always going to the same recruiters that don't have diverse talent, then that may be the issue, not that there aren't any, right? And so I think sometimes when we don't have a diverse group of people in the room, or maybe people who think the same way, then then you would think that, oh, what did I say was wrong? You know, and I think that is the piece of this. And I do appreciate that he came back out and, and made the comment because this is someone who's leading diverse talent. He's at the top. And I think we have to really hold our leaders at the top accountable for what they say and what they do. And for me, if he truly was sorry, I look to see in the next six months to a year what their about us page looks like. Is it different, right? So for me, it's not necessarily what was said, but what happens after. Will this be a problem a year from now still? Or will there really be some accountability to find, intentionally find Black talent? Because we are out there. That's great. You just used a word that I have only recently become familiar with. I mean, I inherently understand it, but I wanted you to just explain it very quickly since you mentioned it. Allyship. What does that mean to you? Well, I will be honest with you, Mark. I don't really like the word allyship, <laughs> but I but I use it because I feel like fundamentally people are starting to understand what that means, right? And And the meaning behind it is, you know, maybe using your privilege if you have it to help somebody else who may not have access to it. In the book, the memo, I talk about that I don't like allyship because I think that allyship is something that has to be activated. And I think someone has to call you that, <laughs> right? I don't think we can go around just calling ourselves allies because that may or may not be true. We may or may not be helping people in the way they need it most. And so I say that to say that 
I think there's a lot of people who are well-intentioned and want to do better. They want to lean in, especially to this moment that we're in right now and be better humans and be better colleagues and managers. And I think that that requires us to do three things, listen, educate, and activate. And I think once we do those things, we can be better humans to each other because I don't know if you are a Boy Scout or maybe some of your listeners were in Girl Scouts or 4-H, but in order to get a badge, you had to do an act. And I think in the workplace, we need those active participants who are invested in women of color in the workplace because when we think about power and privilege, white people do tend to hold most of that. And so how are you using your privilege to help someone else who is working hard, this isn't charity, but who may not be in the room to be able to advocate for themselves. And I think that there's a way for both of us to be successful. And if Black people were the primary holders of power in corporate America, then I would say the same thing. <laughs> you know? Well, it's really, and you just tossed it out there, but it's advocacy that you're asking for. Yes. Absolutely. More than allyship. So, okay. I like the word advocacy much better anyway, and it's clear and more direct. So let's use that one. So in thinking about, you know, that we might have done this conversation live on LinkedIn, I've been, anything that I read, I'm like, oh, I want to ask Minda about this. And so everything's really topical. It's all happening right now. And so there's brand new research from the Society for Human Resource Management that shows white and black human resource staffers are divided on just how big a problem racial discrimination is within their workplace. So listen to these stats, Minda. While 49% of black HR professionals think race or ethnicity-based discrimination exists at their job, only 13% of their white counterparts agree. That's like, just strikes me as like, that's, you know, we're talking about advocacy, but if you don't think that there's a problem, you're not going to get on board with advocacy. So, and on top of that, over two thirds, 68% of black HR professionals think their company isn't doing enough to provide black employees with opportunities, while only 35% of their white HR counterparts say the same. So, I mean, these are big gaps in perception. And tell us why you think, why they're so large and what you wish your white counterparts better understood. Yeah, you know, I love that we have these statistics now because before when we said, oh, I think this is a problem as a black woman speaking about this, people would discredit <laughs> that. Well, no, that's really not happening here, but in discredit my lived experience or someone else's lived experience. So I'm glad that we do have numbers and data because it helps inform what's going on. And I will say this, two things can be true at the same time. Like you can be working at the same place and experience it very differently. And so you think about the white HR professionals, they're not experiencing systemic racism every day. They might have privilege or have access to a network inside of the company that's working for them. Whereas their black counterparts are now experiencing a syndemic, multiple pandemics at a time. So not just the political, but the racial, right? And then on top of that, you're asking a lot of your Black employees to fix a problem that they didn't create. And so think about how that compounds on a person of color. So they're experiencing the workplace very differently than a lot of their counterparts. And so, for example, when I talked about the nail polish situation, you might ask another woman who worked with me, hey, how was Scott? You know, was he a good guy or blah, blah, blah? And she might say, yes, he helped me. He was invested in my success, never had any issues. And then my experience was a little different than hers. And so I think, again, we have to listen to people and we have to 
honor what they tell us when they tell us just because we didn't experience that situation didn't mean it didn't happen. And I think that's the issue, right? Because like you mentioned before, sometimes something will happen. And because maybe someone who was a white person, it didn't hit them the same way it felt for the other person, then we'll say, oh, no, that's just so-and-so being so-and-so. I know them, right? And I think we go so far to say that about people or that these things aren't happening because it's never happened to us. And I think that's the dangerous place. You know, the last thing I want to say, Mark, to your point is McKinsey recently did a study and they asked over 7,000 white women, how many of you feel as though you were allies to women of color in the workplace. Over 80% of them said they felt they were. They asked the same population of women of color, how many of you feel like white women are allies to you in the workplace? And less than 20% felt that way. So again, there is a very much a disconnect. And I think having conversations like we're having today will hopefully help bridge that gap. So I'm not sure we've still pinned this thing down here. And you just (laughs) added another dimension to this, which is just like the complete polarity in perception, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, do you think that as an organization, we might be able to do more for advocacy for black employees and have people sort of say, well, you know, I think we do a pretty good job, you know, so it's ambiguous and you really can't pin it down. But when when you ask people deliberately, are you someone who advocates for black colleagues? And 80 percent of them think they do. But 20 percent of people on the other side of this are saying, no, 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 you don't. And how can we possibly have that big of a gap in perception? Yeah, you know, it baffles me. I think that's the million dollar question. But I do think, again, our definitions are wrong, right? Because I think a lot of people, again, will call themselves allies, but not have anything to show for. (laughs) Right? You know, they haven't done it. They're just nice to you. Yeah, they're like, no, I'm nice to, you know, the black woman that works with me, you know, (laughs) you know, of course, I'm advocating for her. But when you go to look at it, for example, when I was in corporate America, I had a sponsor named Chuck. And Chuck was very much invested in my success. And I can point to a laundry list of things that he spoke my name in rooms. He gave me opportunities, helped me negotiate salaries, all those sorts of things. Now, Chuck, if I were to ask him, Chuck, do you feel like you're an ally? He would probably say, what am I talking about? Right. But he was just he saw that I was doing it and he wanted to be helpful on that pursuit. But we built a relationship. And I think that's part of it. Right. I think it requires some activation. And I think that in order for us to solve any workplace problems, it's going to require us to come together and solve them together and take away our bias. Because oftentimes people don't want to have the courageous conversations and they don't want to be courageous listeners. Right. I'm sure a lot of white women, once they read that information they're like what i can't believe it how can they say right but there is disconnect so i've done so much (laughs) well like you say it's dialogue it's getting greater understanding of all perspectives and i think to your point a minute ago unless you have the data to go here's what it shows this is our perception it just becomes a he said she said kind of a situation so it's actually really good that mckinsey's doing studies like this and all these different organizations that are looking deep into this so i found this fascinating until now and throughout its 140 year history wharton business school has never had a person of color as its dean That in itself doesn't surprise me, but Erica James is now the dean, and she's black. Mm -hmm. And in an interview I read, she said, and I'll quote her, she said, I think if we can create social media platforms, if we can put people on the moon, and if we can have self-driving cars, there's really little we can't do. 
So the fact that we have not created a more diverse work environment means we simply haven't prioritized it. That's the end of the quote. So how do you recommend that we make workplace diversity a true priority? And what would it look like? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think it it sounds simple, but it's so important. Intentionality, like it has to be part of the business case. And so when I say that, diversity isn't just nice to have, but what would it look like if you have a, an opening coming up on your leadership team, your management team, whatever have you, and you say, you know what, we're going to wait for a month or two, even if it takes that long, until we have a diverse slate of candidates. That's how important this next position is to us here at the company. And I think we have to have people who will push and hold folks accountable, not just to say, we got to fill this position tomorrow. That's one step of it. And then also looking at the black and brown talent inside of your company who are in employee resource groups that are holding leadership positions. Are there people that you can identify and retain in advance because I think we talk about sometimes a pipeline issue, but we don't always cultivate the talent that is inside our companies currently. And I think those are missed opportunities. So I think with intentionality and holding leadership accountable, I know there's some companies who their diversity metrics is part of their annual evaluations. I think we need that accountability because I think if it's embedded into the metrics that people will figure out a way how to get it done. (laughs) So let's go back to your diverse group of candidates. So I take a month now and I bring in a whole very diverse group of candidates. Are you saying also that, so now that you have this diversity in the candidate pool for a position, are you saying that it should still be a meritocracy in terms of who gets selected so the best person wins? Or should there be quotas or some leaning into making sure that, like, I guess it is a quota, you know, one out of every 10 business decisions we make to fill a leadership role, we're going to make sure a black person gets it. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, you know, I think it is nuanced, Mark. But what I will say is if you look at your management team right now and it's primarily skews one way, then I'd say, hey, yes, let's be intentional. The next two positions, leadership positions, let's fill them with someone of color, right? And let's find the right person of color, not just any person that we're not checking a box, but let's find the person that we feel will will thrive in this environment, right? That will have the opportunities to add value just like everybody else. And I think that's what's missing from the conversation. It's not about charity. It's not just putting anyone in the position, but you have to have access to the opportunity to even interview. And and so many women that I've talked to that reach out to me is they don't even have the opportunity to interview. We're not even part of the conversation. And I think that's why there needs to be some metrics involved to make sure that we're holding leadership accountable and our hiring teams are diverse when they're interviewing people. Because again, if you have the same people with the same thoughts and the same way of doing business, interviewing, even if you do have a diverse slate of candidates, then where are their biases showing up, right? So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that. But I think we have to be self-aware enough to say, you know what, this is an issue and let's figure out how to solve it. But just pretending that it's going to go away. No, it's not. But on the flip side of that, I think it really signals to women of color, people of color, which companies are intentional about creating a diverse workforce versus those who aren't. 
I very much like the word intentional because it goes back to what you were saying about, you know, what's Wells Fargo's website going to look like? This is who we are as an organization. And I haven't looked at it, so I don't know what it looks like. But, you know, are they intentional about making sure that it's fully representational of their entire employee pool, right? Assuming it's diverse. So I am a employee, high-performing white employee, and I'm also in this diverse group of candidates. And I am doing great work, and I think I deserve this job, and I don't get it. Am I going to be resentful that when I'm told that, you know, we had pretty much no diversity in this team, and we were really wanting to make sure that we added diversity, and so we picked Tom or Mary for this job? Is there a downside to this? Uh, So there might be resentment, maybe, but you also have to realize that history has benefited white men who've always had the opportunity. So if we're going to make the workplace work for everybody, then there's going to be some people who don't get those positions and it's going to be felt across the board, but it can't continue to be skewed toward one group and not another group. And so I hope that people won't see it that way. I hope that There won't be that bitterness because there's so many people of color who've been overlooked for promotions. And most of us are not bitter. We're still looking for the right table to sit at, right? We want to be included. And so I think that we have to realize that the workplace has worked for a long time for certain groups of people. And in order to change that, it's going to require different people to have these opportunities. And that's just part of the intentionality to make sure equity is possible. So that's very clear, very direct, and very good. And so let's talk now about how I can do this, right? So I am this white workplace leader trying to understand the Black experience. And now my organization is saying that we're planning policy changes in response to current calls for racial justice. It's a it's a high priority for us. But I personally feel very comfortable interacting with a Black employee. I don't know them very well. I don't understand their cultures very well. That's the assumption here, right? So as that is a setup, that dean at Wharton, Erica James, said that she believes people of color, especially women, have less access to mentors, which shouldn't surprise us, right? And that they're not always sponsored in the same ways that white employees are. And even Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg said that just recently, like in the last few days, that managers don't spend enough informal time speaking with women, moreover with black women. So we got another hurdle there. So how do we remedy all of this? How do you get me as this sort of symbolic, motivated, but inexperienced manager in being an advocate, being a coach, being a mentor for Black women, Black men, mm-hmm. anyone of color? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And recently I was doing a, a series of workshops with a certain company and I had a session with the managers and they were being very vulnerable in terms of some of them are tired of talking about race. (laughs) Some of them, those who are not affected by it, right, indirectly, they're tired. There's all these different feelings and sentiment. And I asked the question, how many of you who are people managers who are predominantly white feel comfortable talking to your staff about race? And over half of them did not feel comfortable, Mm -hmm. right? And I said, you know, so the next step, and I said, appreciate your vulnerability because that's how we get to solutions. We can't pretend that we're comfortable with things that we're not. I said, that's the way we have to be vulnerable because if we don't, we do our team a disservice. And so then it led me to have a conversation with the HR department and their people's team to say, 
what are the tools that these managers need in their toolkit to manage diverse talent so that we're understanding where their bias is, where their strengths are, you know, what resources do they need to be supported on so that women of color are not being left or anyone for that matter is being left from the table because they don't feel comfortable with these conversations. And I think that's where our companies really have to be honest with themselves and say, what are the tools that our managers need to succeed? Because even before we talk about race, there's a lot of managers that are put into positions and they're not good people managers, right? But they're managing a team. So what makes you think that they're going to do any better with some of these hard conversations. And so I think we have to provide managers with the appropriate training to be able to learn how to invest and have conversations and humanize the experience of everyone on their team, not just the people that play the same video games as them or go golfing with them. And I think that is what I see the opportunities, Mark, to provide managers with the tools they need. Because when I wrote the memo, One of the statistics that I use for my research is that 70% of women of color feel as though their managers are not invested in their success. And I think that's a direct correlation between why we see less than 4% of women of color in the executive suite. Well, you know, the interesting thing is the parallel for me is irrespective of race. I believe there's evidence that, you know, many, many, many people a high percentage of people that have a management role should never be in them in the first place. They, 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 I call it the caring gene. There's science behind this, but basically what this means is, is that they're not motivated to care about, to thrive in the success of other people, to actually want to see other people succeed and do well and grow and accomplish, right? They're either threatened by it or they're just so focused on themselves that it doesn't really matter to them. I'm not gonna go help them because I've got my own agenda, right? And so I'm saying none of those people should be in leadership roles and organizations need to weed those people out because what we all need is a caring, supportive manager. And then you overlay this with with the black experience, which is we're not getting that support. I think you'd be surprised to know that the percentage of people of all races that aren't really getting the support is far lower than it should be. So I think, you know, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, really, it's time for all of us as managers just to step up and be courageous. And if you're uncomfortable because you don't really have a connection with anybody who's from a different race, specifically Black, go out of your way to make it happen. You know, it's like they're just another human being. It's just like, you know, that we think they're, I don't know what we think. There's a million fears, but they're not like us. They're different than us. I'm going to trip and fall. I'm going to say something stupid, whatever. I just think the more courage we have, the more willingness that we have to just say, hey, you know, I'm trying to do better here. Help me do better. Tell me what's going on with you. I think you could bond really quickly. Yeah, I, I totally agree because I think that that's the part where we're not humanizing each other. I Just like you said, I'm a human being just like you, right? Of like, course, right. Yeah. The more we get to talk, you, we might find that we have more in common than maybe even someone who looks exactly like me. You know what I mean? And so I think we just have to give each other that space and grace to get to know each other. Because again, I feel like once we do that, we find those common grounds and we actually, we're more productive when we do. So do you know who Emmanuel Acho is? I don't. So you have to check him out because he's a former professional football player. I don't think he played very long, but he's a really good ESPN analyst, TV analyst for people listening outside of the United States, sports commentator. But he also has this video series and it's being sponsored by Oprah Winfrey. So it's now it's become a big deal and it's called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. (laughs) 
And it's a clever, non-confrontational, he's lovely. He's just, you know, he's just, he's just got a great sense of humor. And it's this effort at helping white people understand what separates them. You know, like, here are our cultural differences. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. This is very simple. But I met Magic Johnson a couple of times. And one of the things that he said was that you go to a movie and you may have popcorn and candy and then you'll go out to dinner afterwards. He says, black people, when we go to the movies, we have dinner. We watch the movie and we have dinner. And it's so simple, but it was like, I didn't know that. You know, it was like sort of blew my mind when he said that, right? It's like such a cultural difference. And so since you don't know him and you probably haven't seen his videos, I I really probably don't have much of a question here. I just think I'm mentioning it to my audience because I think it's worthwhile to see. But it, I think in, in many respects, after watching several of them, it seemed to me that it was really validating your message, which is, you know, just get to know us and everything's going to be fine. <laughs> right. Check it out. <laughs> so somebody else that I think is just incredibly impressive, you know, who Bakari Sellers is. I got to believe that. Right. Yes, I do. <laughs> All right. So I, well, <laughs> it blows my question. So at 22 years old, he was the youngest African-American elected official in the United States, which is incredible. And he's 36 years old now. He's got a law degree. And I saw him interviewed on NPR recently. And what he said was that he goes, I have this deep concern that we've kind of created this. And unfortunately, you've got protests, but some people conflate them as riots. Right. And so if you hear riot, you're not going to hear what the underlying issue is, why people are marching. Right. All those people are doing is rioting. And if you get caught up in that, then you miss really you miss the whole plot. And so what he was saying was, he says, I have this concern that we're somehow going to miss the moment to make real change aligned to this Black Lives Movement. So I wanted to ask you. Do you see this as that moment as the catalyst for everything that you're talking about? Or do you think that this is just going to be a progression over time? We'll finally get there. I think this is the moment. I mean, we're not going to solve it all right now, but I think it's the decisions, the actions that we take right now that will help us continue this movement. Right. But I think if we start to get fatigued or we get tired or we get frustrated then I think we miss out on a really awesome opportunity because I'll be honest with you, Mark, when I started my career, you know, 15 years ago, I never in a lifetime thought I would be in a situation where we'd be talking about what it's like for black people in the workplace. I just didn't think we'd ever be at a space where anybody would be talking about racism in the workplace or acknowledging that that could even be a possibility. So look how far we have come. And if we seize this moment, if we all seize it, not just black people, but every human being sees it as a, a humanity issue, then we get to make the workplace better for current and future generations. And so for me, I really do think there's something different about it. And I hope that people will continue to lean into their courage and push aside their caution because nobody benefits when we're cautious. And so I hope when people start to get a little fatigued that you drink your water and you hydrate and realize we got to keep going because this is important, right? We have to make lasting change. And I think every generation has their time where they can either lean into that courage or lean into their caution. And I would encourage each of your listeners to figure out who do you want to be courageous for and think about the actions that you need to take to do that. And so I really do hope that it's not just a moment, but we do make it a practice. Separate from the human aspect of this, there's a huge upside for managers who create diverse teams, 
mm-hmm. whatever level you're at, if you're managing a small team or a large organization all the way up to the top, th- there's just a preponderance of data that shows that the greater the diversity, the more innovation, the fewer problems they have, because you've got you know, not to use the same word, but you've got diverse thinking. You've got, hey, have you ever thought about this being a risk? It's like, well, that was not within my purview. So thank you for bringing that in. And so diverse teams, for many, many reasons, end up being much more successful, much more productive. And so there's sort of an additional upside besides doing the right thing for leaders to start saying, I need to create teams. I need to create a team that sort of represents what the real world looks like and not just what I look like. Yep. I couldn't have said it any better. Oh, I appreciate that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, yeah, you know, you're talking a minute ago about, you know, like, hey, we can have more in common than most of my friends. And I'm like, I actually feel that way with Minda. So we'll have to be friends after this, even though, you know, we've had a connection for a while here. You're stuck with me now. <laughs> no, not stuck at all. So I'm really enjoying this. Minda, if you've heard any of our previous podcasts, you know that we take a break from the discussion around this point and we move into what we call the heartbeat round. So I have about a dozen questions I'd like to ask you. But with these, your goal is going to be to answer them quickly, instinctively, in other words, in a heartbeat. Are you game? I'm game. Okay, cool. A personal hero of yours? Martin Luther King Jr. One book you wish all of us would read? Warmth of the Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson. A cultural value every organization should have. Lead with courage. What's the thing you love most about living in New York City? There's always something open (laughs) anytime that I want it. (laughs) (laughs) Skill improvement you're working on right now. Listening. Listening. Active listening. Trait you admire most in other people. Resilience. Musician or singer who inspires you. I have to say Beyonce. (laughs) I get it. Someone who makes you laugh. My godsons. Your synonym for the word heart. Love. Magazine or newspaper you never miss reading. The New Yorker. Something you think we all need to do at least once in our life. Scream. A prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. More humanity in the workplace. One lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. That I can bring my authentic self into the room. That's a message I think anyone listening to this should take away. So that's a great way to end the heartbeat round. Thank you for going through those with me. And of course, we come to the end here. And so I learned long ago that, you know, no matter how much I prepare, no matter how much we dig into the work, there's always something that I didn't get to. And I don't want to leave my guests thinking, you know, we never really talked about this. So I want to turn the discussion into a platform for you to say anything that you would like to say, anything in your book, the memo, or from your experience of promoting it that you'd like to convey in order to just punctuate everything we've been talking about. Yeah, thank you. The one thing that I just, I think to remind everybody is that this is a journey, right? And you're not going to learn it all tonight. You're not going to learn it even by the end of the year. But I think as long as each of us are actively participating in equitable experiences in the workplace, then we get to produce an employee journey and employee experience in the workplace in which people are happy and productive. And when people are happy, productive, and feel as though they're valued, then that's good for business. 
you know, I often ask people who take my class at NYU on talent development, how much of your workforce do you want to use? And if we're only using a certain portion, then we're missing out on productivity and talent of so many other people. And so I just want you to think about what are the steps you can take and hold yourself accountable to making sure you're invested in everyone's success. And if you're not, don't be afraid to ask for those tools and resources to make sure that you're able to lead the best way possible. I mean, the hearts, you're awesome. I'm certain that now that our audience has heard this whole discussion, that they feel the same way. You just have a very lovely, thoughtful way of presenting what could be perceived as sort of confrontational or difficult, challenging. You come up with the words, but not in the way you present it. And that's a very high compliment because sometimes when you have difficult communication or information to present, it doesn't always get conveyed very well. And I think you've obviously been thinking about this for a really long time and you've refined your understanding. Just the usage of words sometimes just punctuates just very, very powerfully. So I always admire that and that's why I'm calling it out. So on behalf of my entire audience, thank you so very much. Thank you. I love your podcast, Mark. I have to say that it's a favorite of mine. So it's an honor to be here with you. Oh, that's so wonderful. I'm so grateful. I appreciate you coming very much. And I just wish you tremendous success with the book and all you're trying to accomplish. I know you're going to have great success. Awesome. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Bye. Before we go, I thought I'd share one quick personal story with you. Until the pandemic hit, I routinely started my days at the gym. I got there early, started off by doing cardio, and I used my phone to check the news, respond to tweets, and read emails. And so basically, from the time I woke up every morning, 20 minutes later, I was knee deep in a work. But thanks to COVID, I now walk on the beach every day before sunrise. I don't carry a phone or listen to music, and that time alone to think and plan my day has become sacred to me. I find myself infinitely more centered and focused tied to these daily walking meditations, and I doubt I ever would have ditched the gym had the pandemic never occurred. So what's the moral? Always look for the silver lining in life and take a hard look at your routines to ensure they continue to serve you well. As always, please keep me in mind as a remote speaker for your next meeting, and please reach out to me if I can help you or your organization in any possible way. I want to thank my wonderful team of supporters, including Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. And finally, I leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening, thanking you for sharing, and signing off for now. Thank you.